Thanks for tuning in to the podcast of The Porch Church. We hope today's message blesses you and encourages you in your spiritual journey. If you have questions, visit us on the web, www.theporchchurch.tv. In week two of our series at the movies, we've been looking at some iconic movie stories and relationships, and we've been trying to diagnose and find our faith that's right on the silver screen in front of us. And there's probably no more iconic movie series than that of Toy Story, right? It's a classic story about what our toys do when we're not around. Of course, you have Woody the Sheriff, everyone's favorite deputy, right? And uh, he's, of course, Andy's favorite toy and his replacement rival, but turned best friend as the series goes on, Buzz Lightyear, Space Ranger, and uh, that's the name of the game. These two have had their ups and downs over years and years of movies, including the latest incarnation this summer of Toy Story 4, Hands for Toy Story 4. Anybody seen it? My family went to without me, so I've yet to see Toy Story 4. So we're not talking about Toy Story 4 today. We're just talking about Woody and Buzz uh, and the friendship that they've demonstrated over the years because they show us that friendship is about overcoming your differences, embracing the larger picture that's going on, and occasionally knocking one another out a window or a moving vehicle. That's just what friendship is is, right? But we see these iconic movie duos all across the silver screen, or at least they portray a version of friendship for us. Buzz has Woody. Harry has Lloyd. Laverne has Shirley. All of these dynamic duos throughout the world, which brings us to the question for us today. So who do you have? Who's got your back through thick and thin, whether you're getting into trouble or whether you need someone to help get you out of trouble? Why is friendship so hard, and why is it so difficult to keep a best friend past the fifth grade anyway? And what's the point of best friends if they don't last forever, and just why does friendship matter? This is where we're going to go today, and while Hollywood gives us some answers, I'd like to think that we could look a little bit further back into history to see examples of friendship displayed for us that we can emulate and strive to have in our own light. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18, 1 Samuel chapter 18, if you didn't bring a Bible but would like to follow along with one of the worship center Bibles here. You can just slip your hands up. Our ushers are walking around with Bibles. They'd love to let you borrow one. Or if you don't own a Bible, you can just keep this. It's our gift to you. We just want you to have God's Word in your life. We'll be on page 132. If you want to use one of the worship center Bibles, 132, 1 Samuel chapter 18. We're going to look into the life of King David. King David is, of course, a significant Old Testament figure. You may recall that he's a man after God's own heart. He was the greatest king that ancient Israel had known. He wrote many of the Psalms, and he is a huge focus of what the Old Testament kings are about. And so while we often turn to David to study his leadership, to study his, his, the way that he leads the kingdom, sometimes we study his shortcomings, we often miss a significant portion of his life, which is the friendship that he has with the people around him. Specifically today, we're going to look at his friendship with his best friend who goes by the name of Jonathan. So let's start our story. We're going to hop, skip, and jump around, so you'll probably want to keep uh, your Bibles open there. Of course, all of our scriptures will also be on the screen. First Samuel chapter 18, let's just start at verse 1. 
After David had finished talking with Saul, pause, Saul was the current king of Israel, whose son happens to be Jonathan. Let's step back in. After talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. After Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself, Jonathan took off his robe he was wearing and he gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. This is a symbolic gesture, again, from the prince of the kingdom to David, the anointed soon to be king of the kingdom. This was the covenant that they shared together. Jonathan was Saul's son, and again, Saul being the current king of Israel, and his son is best friends with who will be his successor. Needless to say, things got a little tense in the palace between those three relationships. But in the midst of this toxicity, we see a friendship in full bloom. Jonathan, it's recorded, loved David as himself. This phrase gets repeated. We'll see it come up a time or two again in our reading. He puts himself on David's side, even against his father. The narrator wants us to know that such was the friendship that we had. And before we get too much deeper, there's many modern opinions on the relationship between David and Jonathan, that they use the evidence in this passage to cite the fact that perhaps David and Jonathan were more than friends, perhaps they were lovers. Before we get too much further, I just want to address that, that there's nothing within the text itself that would lead us to believe that. I believe that that's a modern reading, that we take our modern preconceptions and we attempt to read them into the biblical narrative. If you've ever taken a modern art right class or if you've ever looked back into history, this is rule number one. When we read and approach an ancient text, it's that we can't read it through our worldview and our world lens. We must take it for what the authors meant and what they intended and what they were trying to communicate to us. So to be perfectly clear, I see zero biblical evidence that David and Jonathan were anything more than best friends. They were blood brothers. They were thick as thieves. And while the language used to describe them may be difficult for our modern ears, don't read too much into the popular rhetoric of today. Let's jump back in now. I want to talk about friendship, the need for friendship, what makes a good friend, and what does it take to be a good friend. Let's start here with the need for friendship. If you still got your Bibles open, turn a page or so to 1 Samuel chapter 19. Let's watch the next stage in this story unfold. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David, and he warned him, My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Verse 4, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and look what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. That's David and Goliath. You may remember that story. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? So Saul listened to Jonathan, and he took this oath, as surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. 
The need for friendship is pretty evident in this passage. We all need people to stand up and to speak for us when we're not present. We need people to advocate for us. In David's life, it was with the king itself who was trying to kill him. In our lives, though, we need those relationships who carry us forward even when we're not in the room. We need those people who have our back, whether it's to friends on the playground or to coworkers when we're not present. The need for friendship has never never been greater in our world today. And I think as we explore a little bit deeper into this biblical narrative, we're going to talk about this fact that you and I were created for deep, meaningful relationships. We were imbued with that from our Creator, that we were made to connect with people deeply, to share and experience life together. And at no other point in history besides today have we been worse at connecting meaningfully in relationships. We were made to be connected that way, and we simply don't have it in our modern society today, right? After all, how many friends do you have? Now, not relationships, not acquaintances. I'm talking thick as thieves, I love you, man, I take a bullet for you kind of friends. Do you truly have? Because, and I don't want to brag, but I checked my Facebook account this morning, and I have 1,480 friends. Can you believe it? I'm so blessed, right? But we all know that's not what we're talking about, right? Social networks are designed to connect us, but we all know the distance at which many of those people exist and operate in our lives. The point is that we're created to be in close proximity with people, and while those numbers and connections on a computer screen may help us and may provide some bit of comfort and consolation, we all know at the end of the day that those aren't the friends that we need, that we want to share life with, that we can confide in through thick and thin. Medical studies have actually been done on the effects, the positive effects of friendship on our physical bodies and the negative toll that, that loneliness and being isolated can create. Loneliness has increased risks for heart disease, obesity, anxiety, depression, and that's just the start of a very long list of clear correlations between friendship and the health of our bodies. Beyond that, friendship allows us to be more loving to people. There are actually nerve centers in your body that quell your body's need to fight or flight in unknown situations based on the strength of your relationship with the person across the table. And it works like a muscle, which means the more time that you spend trusting in relationships, sitting across the table from someone sharing a cup of coffee, the more likely you are to be a nicer, kinder, gentler, more friendly human being. This is what I mean when I say we're created to be in deep and meaningful relationships. I also think that it's no stretch to say that part of the rhetoric that's dividing our country on every single issue today might come from the fact that we're social beings living in isolation and typing things into a phone instead of saying them face to face to someone who's close to us. Listen, friends make us human. Friends make us human. They're what ground us. They're what our, our core beings are created in being connected to another individual. And without those key distinct relationships, we become inhumane in our practice and in our existence. Friends keep us human, and when those relationships are absent, we begin to act in ways that are no longer consistent with our highest ideals and with what we believe is right and true in the world. 
It's like it's not good for people to be alone. I feel like I've heard that somewhere. It's like this reverberates from the very center of creation when God looked at the first man and said, you know what, it's not okay for him to be alone, which a quick theological tangent there, he said it's not good for man to be alone, and God was fully present with him in the garden. God saw Adam and said, you know what, it's not okay that he just has me. Adam needs someone alongside him. He needs a helpmate. Of course, we would correlate that to spousal relationships, but I think it goes deeper than that, that God said, in order for you to become the best version of yourself, in order for you to be the best person of yourself, you need relationships around you that point you to God, but that are not, in fact, God himself. We need friends. It's woven throughout the biblical narrative. It's woven throughout our experience, and God knows that. Proverbs 18.24 says it this way, One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Proverbs 17.17, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. Proverbs speaks to this high degree of friendship. If we could sum up those two ideas, I'd say it this way. Life is full of adversity, is it not? Just like when your construction project isn't finished and you've got to reboot the entire church structure overnight, right? I'm stressing out about it. We all seem to be okay. Are you all okay? Other than the coffee. I'm sorry about that. But beyond that, we're doing good, right? Life is full of adversity, and the only way through adversity, according to Scripture and I believe practice, is with friends. The only way to get through adversity, conversely, the only way to get through life is to have friends and relationships close around you. And can I just be honest with you for a second this morning? I'm, I'm a preacher, right? So I listen to a lot of other preachers to steal their ideas. Uh, but I listen to a lot of preachers, and at every point in every sermon on friendship, they get to this point, this exact point, and they say, and that's why I'm married to my best friend. Just gag me with a sock. Like, seriously? Now, I love my wife, right? We've talked about that. I don't have any problems with that. I think you should be close with your wife. I'm okay with you saying that your spouse is your best friend. Totally get that. But that is not at all what we're addressing today not even close. When we're talking about the biology, the spiritual nature, what God created, absolutely there's biblical context for spousal relationships that those relationships ought to be close. Love that, affirm that, let's own that. But today what I want to talk about is the relationships that we form that are not with that significant other, with a friend as close as a brother or sister, with someone that we trust, with the person that you go out to coffee with when you're having trouble in your marriage who says, dude, that woman is the best thing about you. In fact, she's the only thing I like about you. Don't screw this up, right? <laughs> Those are the relationships that we're talking about today. And so for the rest of today, when we hear friendship and best friend, I want you to exclude your spouse, should you have one, from that conversation. Not because they're not important, not because that's not one of the closest relationships in your life, but because we need to surround ourselves with people who can better us and pull us forward. And your spouse is the relationship that you share a bed with, a house with, that you share children with perhaps. Your life is built around that person, but we need friends who don't exist in that structure, who can still move the ball forward on our spiritual development, our personal development, who we can build in relationship with. 
Because the point of today's message is that we need friends to navigate life with together. That includes our marriage. There's been research done, or at least a quote done, that says that you're the sum of the five closest relationships to you. You are the product of the five closest people who are around you. If you have a spouse, your spouse is on that list. That's great. All I'm asking is who are the other four? Who are the other people that you surround yourself to pull you up and to push you forward? We are wired that way spiritually, biologically. It's in our, the nature of our connectedness. We're endowed by our creator, and our society is notoriously bad at forming these genuine connections. We all need friends in our lives. So what makes a good friend? How do we do that? How do we find true friendship along this journey? What are the pieces that it takes? Here's the reality. First thing under that point is that friendship takes work. Friendship takes hard work. It takes investment and intentionality. As a matter of fact, if you don't actually prioritize these relationships, you probably won't have them in your life. And then we complain that we're bored on Friday nights because we don't have friends that we've invested into. But to create a relationship with someone, especially in this day and age, takes intentionality and hard work. There's a Starbucks up the road here by King Supers that I typically go to, right? It's easy for me to get to, and it is the fastest way for me to inject caffeine directly into my bloodstream. So that's the coffee shop that I choose, right? I choose it because it's convenient. Should that Starbucks close down, I, I would find a different Starbucks, right? Like my commitment is not to a specific location. My commitment is to me and to the convenience that it takes by which I get coffee. Today, I think that our friends are based out of convenience far too much. We work together. Their office is close. We eat lunch at the same time at the same place. Our kids are in the same activities or school. We go to the same church. These are great places to start friendships, but they cannot be the sum of your investment into a relationship. True friendship is built on commitment and not on convenience. True friendship, finding people to really share life with, is built on a continued commitment, a resolve to stay close to them no matter what, not just on who's conveniently around at this time. Let's jump back into our story. You can flip one more chapter if you've still got your Bibles open. 1 Samuel chapter 20. Let's start at verse 12. Now, by this time, there's been some more quelling on Saul wanting to kill David. If you recall the story, there's ups and downs there. So here we are at verse 12. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. If he's favorably disposed towards you, will I not send word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. Listen to his commitment, despite his father, who is the king, is out to get him. But Jonathan is committed to David through this process. Let's keep reading. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Verse 16. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him 
as himself. There's that phrasing again. You may also notice that this word covenant has appeared a couple of times in this scripture reading. Covenant is a, a little bit of a foreign idea for you. you. might recognize the word from marriage ceremonies because that's where we take a solemn vow before a group of people and declare that we're going to keep our promises. That's really what a covenant is. A covenant is a marriage vow, but in David and Jonathan's relationship, it was simply a vow to affirm and to have each other's back no matter what, to honor their word to each other. Commitment is what we're striving for here. So when it comes to your friendships, especially if you think back to the closest friends that you've had throughout the years, are they formed out of commitment or convenience? Were they formed out of just being with each other no matter what, and you had ups and you had downs, but you stuck together, or were they simply convenient of who was around? Chances are that your relationship of convenience have faded, perhaps just into Facebook friends over time, but those that you are committed to are those relationships that you can still point to and identify as meaningful in your life. True friendship is based on commitment, not convenience. True friendship is also based on honesty and transparency. Honesty and transparency. In other words, to make friends, to be a friend, you've got to put yourself in the game. You can't just sit back on the sidelines and play it safe. True friends are formed when we can share openly and honestly with the person across the table from us and when we don't have anything to hide back from them. My kids went back to school this past week, and so uh, I feel like I'm having the same conversation this morning together with us as I was with them, right? Here's what I say to them. Friends don't make secrets, and secrets don't make friends right? When you're forming relationships, holding things back aren't the ways to create deep, lasting relationships. Now, should you sit down with a coworker and just air all your dirty laundry in one coffee setting? Probably not wise, right? You probably won't make a friend. Y'all with me this morning? Don't do that. But you have to move yourself in that direction. Too much of our friendships stay shallow because we leave the communication shallow. How is work? Did you watch the game? You want to try that new food place? And our relationships don't get any deeper than surface level. We have to open ourselves up to more honest communication. Proverbs 27.6 says it this way, wounds from a friend can be trusted. That's because when our friends, our relationships know enough about us to say something that might actually injure us, chances are they're doing it for our benefit and for our best, not for the sake of wounding us. They aren't trying to hurt you. They're trying to help you and grow you. Chances are that many of us don't have friends that are close enough to even wound us because we've kept such distance from them in our lives. Again, this place to get to in a relationship takes effort and intentionality, but it ought to be the direction that we move. Because again, another proverb for us this morning, Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. If you want to get better, if you want to grow, if you want people around you to pull you forward, then you've got to be in those committed relationships to grow together through thick and thin. And here's the reality. What honesty and transparency create in a relationship is a big scary word called intimacy. Intimacy is simply familiarity and safety. Often, especially in church world, we use it as a euphemism for sexuality, but the reality is that it's just a closeness in kinship with the friends around us. Part of that reason, though, that I think the word intimacy scares us is that it's a sad commentary on the depth of our relationship with the people around us, that the only people that we have true intimacy with is our spouse. 
We don't have friends that we have an intimate, growing, close relationship with, and I think that that's the point of what Bible and what David and Jonathan and what God created us to do, to share in those deep, intimate, meaningful relationships with each other. Because we've established that we all need friends, and friends are a commitment, and they take work and honest communication. So let's look at the other side. What does it take to be a good friend? What does it take to, to make a good friend, to be that person to someone else in your life? In our household, we have a saying, and we say it this way. To be a good friend, you have to play tennis. Not, not the sport, okay? Don't, don't, we're not doing tennis lessons after church. That's not what I'm talking about. But to be a good friend, you have to play tennis. And here's, here's what we mean by that. In a relationship, in a conversation, there's back and there's forth. I hit you the ball, you hit it back. I text you to go for coffee, you text me the next time. There's an ebb and a flow. I hit a volley, you hit a volley, and so the relationship grows and goes forward. In our house, we have honest conversations about relationships that we form, and we say to each other, you know what, I just don't feel like they're playing tennis. Which when we say that, it means that we're just the one leading. We're the one always asking. We're the one always reaching out. And that's not friendship. That's just kind of drudgery. So to be a good friend, you have to be on the receiving end, not only hitting to other people, but when someone hits you the ball, when they send you the text, when they ask you out to coffee, you've got to be there to play tennis back. To be a good friend, you've got to play tennis. And really part of the, the whole crux of this conversation, part of the climax that we're getting to is that I fear that we're asking the wrong questions about friendship. We're asking, how come I don't have friends? Where are the people close to me? How come nobody cares? But I think too often it's not that we don't have good friends. It's more apt to say that we're simply not being a good friend. We're not displaying it. We're not leading forward with it. In other words, are we modeling for the people around us what true friendship looks like? Are we showing them the way forward? Maybe they'll play tennis, maybe they won't, but are we at least doing our part to keep the game moving forward, or are we pouting inside the house because no one wants to play with us? To have friends, you have to be a friend. Again, I feel like I'm having the same conversation as with our children that are going to school, but I think we need to hear it ourselves sometimes, right? The, the way to treat others is the way that you want to be treated, and the only person that you can control is yourself. And if they want to act that way, then let them act that way, but you still be you. If they're not being a good friend, that doesn't change whether or not you can be a good friend towards them. I think we'd all be doing a whole lot better if we just took the lessons that we were teaching our children and thought about them through our own lenses, through our own relationships. And, and here's why I think these things are so important to us today. In the Hebrew culture, especially in the written tradition, there's a concept called first appearance. That is, whenever a, a phrase is repeated in the biblical narrative, you kind of carry with it the story of every time that term appears, every time it surfaces up, you're reminded of the stories that got you there. Again, this was an oral culture, and so many of them didn't just read the words in a book like we do, they had them memorized. And so whenever you heard a phrasing, your mind was immediately drawn to the other places where you had that phrase memorized. This is why I wanted to draw our attention to that idea of Jonathan loved David as himself. He loved David as himself. He loved David as himself. What does that sound like to your ears as you hear it? I think it sounds like Jesus' answer to the question, what is the greatest commandment? You remember that story from Matthew 22? Teacher, which is the greatest commandment 
in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment, he says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Here's what that, that means. That means as Jesus is answering to these scribes and teachers, what's the greatest commandment? How do I please God the most? Jesus tells them two things. He tells them the Shema, which is Deuteronomy chapter 6. It was something that all Hebrew children had memorized from the age that they could talk all the way up until they had children of their own. Everybody could parrot this phrase that you're supposed to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It was woven into the culture. But Jesus says not only should you love God, not only should your love be upward and external, your love should also be displayed in the same type of relationship that David and Jonathan had that Jonathan would set himself aside in order to serve David, that Jonathan would make David the most important, that he would advocate for him in front of his father. And even when his father, who was the king, was trying to kill him, the friendship that Jonathan had with David was such that he stood in between and said, no, I'm not going to allow that to happen. David is my friend. And as Jesus gives the greatest commandment ever, he refers back to this relationship. And he says, how should you treat your neighbor like that? What should it look like to be in friendship and relationship with the world around us? Be like that person. Be like those people. Play out that story as you know it. And here's why that's important to us as Christ followers. Part of the people who should be leading the charge in the world for creating and establishing and finding friendship ought to be us because we have it displayed so prominently for us. Not only in the Old Testament stories like this one of Jonathan and David, but actually Jesus displays this friendship for us as well. He gathers disciples, which we kind of say, oh, that's maybe a little bit different. But if you recall, Jesus ends his relationship with his followers and with us by changing their definition. Do you remember this story in John chapter 15? Jesus says this, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not understand what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, because everything I have learned from my Father I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, I chose you. Jesus is our Savior, he's our Lord, he is the Son of God incarnate, he is all of these big, heavy, lofty things that we struggle to get our mind around and we struggle to understand at a soul level, but the very basic definition of who Jesus is to us is that we're his friends. We're the people that he chooses to be with. They're the people that he wants to hang out with. We're the people that he marginalizes himself for to be with us. And the call, as you read through Scripture, is to go and do Likewise, to go and befriend people, to recruit people into what it means to be in deep, meaningful relationship with society. And in case you haven't missed it, our world is lonely. Our world is full of people who can post things on social media and who can feed their angry rage, and eventually that spills over into real-world situations. I can't think of a single shooting that's happened that hasn't come from an isolated individual who didn't have close relationships with the people around him, and so he thought the way to extract justice was to do this horrific thing. And I'm not trying to overemphasize the role of friendship in our life. I'm simply trying to draw a clear state that human beings, whether you're a Christ follower or not, are created for deep, meaningful relationship. 
and that we as the church have the strongest example for that. And I just want to challenge us as a church body, are we living that out in the world around us? Are we living out what it means to be human beings by loving people as we love ourselves? Following the, the second commandment that Jesus gives to us, following the examples that Jesus gives, following the example of, of David and Jonathan, this is our heritage. How are we doing with it? Not just do I have friends in my life, but are there places whereby I can lead in friendship to the world around me? Because this is not just something for school-age children. This is a message and a meaning for us. So here's your challenge this week. Be a friend. Simple enough, right? Be a friend. Extend yourself in loving kindness to another. Maybe you have a best friend and things have filtered off a little bit. Take out your phone right now, send them a text message. Hey, thinking about you. I just wanted to let you know that I love you. Invite them to coffee this week if they're close. Say, we haven't had lunch for a long time. Let's get together for no other reason than just because I love you and you're my friend. Maybe you're saying, I don't have a lot of those relationships. Where can you take a step forward? Where, instead of waiting for someone to hit the tennis ball to you, where can you lead out and hit the tennis ball towards some people? At work. At school events, as kids start back up, uh, there's a few people in this room. Lob a tennis ball. What are you doing for lunch? You want to get together later this week for coffee? It starts somewhere. It's a start with us. More importantly than that, where's the lonely person at the school cafeteria, at the work cafeteria, walking by you on the street who just needs to know that there's a God out there who loves them. And if he can't believe that there's a God out there who loves them, maybe he can believe for just a second that he matters to you. It's as simple as a smile on the street, a wave, hello, holding the door open, saying, I see you, I acknowledge you, you're important and valuable, not even because I know you, but because you are a human being on this planet, created in God's image, and that makes you worth my time to get to know you, to talk to you, to seek you out, to make sure that you don't feel as isolated and alone as I feel sometimes. This is the heritage that we have, not only from Jesus and the Bible, but as human beings. And I just want to challenge us to carry that weight. Let me give you an easy step. We're starting small groups here in just a couple weeks. We'll have signups forthcoming. Maybe you want to sign up to host a small group to say, I don't know about making friends in the church, but I'd be willing to open my home up once a week for people to come over to talk about the sermon, maybe share a meal together, but, but I'd be open to hosting that. There's a box in your bulletin that you can check that. Next week we'll be starting signups for that. But if you want to host a group to say, I'm willing to open my home up to make some new friends, I want you to check that box and I'll get with you this week to give you more of those details. Maybe you're going, I don't know about hosting. Would you at least put it in your mind to think about this week? What would it look like to be a part of a small group this semester for me? Could I carve out one day a week to step into my church family to, to try and make some relationships happen, to find someone to play tennis with? Look, all I'm saying is that we weren't meant to be alone. We were created for deep and meaningful relationships, but those take work and effort and honesty and integrity, but they are so, so worth it. Who will you befriend this week? 
going to invite the worship team to come on back up. We'll sing one more song here before we're done, but I'm just going to ask that worship crew would dim the lights a little bit, and I want you to bow your heads just in a moment of quiet reflection to, to think through. Maybe something I said spoke to you. Maybe there was something in the scripture or something in the worship that God, you felt the Holy Spirit just touching your hearts today. More than anything else that we do, I hope that's why you show up, because this is a place where you feel God's Spirit, where you hear His voice, and so I just want to encourage you to open yourself up to that today. Holy Spirit, what would you speak to me today? Where can I be a better friend? God, who in my life needs a friend that I could fill that in? Or God, where are the relationships where I need to circle back to and where I need to be a better friend to them? This is a spiritual issue for us in church. I want us to embrace it. Heavenly Father, God, would you speak to us now as we worship you? Would you remind us of the places where you've demonstrated your loving kindness, your friendship to us, and may we take that relationship, God, and may we show it to the world around us. God, teach us what it means to be friends both with the people who are closest with us and with the people who are distant but who desperately need a relationship, not only with another human being but with you. God, would you open our eyes, would you soften our hearts to see people as you see them, to help us be a friend to someone in need, and maybe in so doing we'll find the friends that we're also seeking. It's just like I tell my fifth grader, in order to make friends, you've got to be a friend. So, God, would you help us to be friends this week? And may this be our spiritual act of worship to you going forward. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. It's in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All God's kids said.